Today I'm, I'm finishing up my mini-series on uh, sermons on heaven. Um, first thing, I'd like to confess something. Um, Steve, if you don't want those chocolate chip cookies in that jar, I'll take them. <laughs> that's, that's just sad, but I'll take them. Um, I'm reading from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, and then verses 22 through the end of that chapter, and then going into the next chapter and reading the first five verses there. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then going to verse 22 in the same chapter. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river, there stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Today I want to speak on when heaven comes to earth. But let me start with why heaven comes to earth. The answer is because God, when he created this world, he never saw it as a temporary project. This world was created with eternity in mind. All along, God thought this world was a great idea. When he made this planet and its vegetation and its oceans and its animals and we humans, God pronounced them all good, and he hasn't changed his mind. Sin has marred this world. Our evil has polluted it. But God's plan is to correct those mistakes and cleanse this world, not destroy it. What's even more amazing is that this planet will not be transported to heaven's realm. But heaven is coming here. We're not going to end up in heaven. Heaven is going to end up with us. We're not going up. Heaven's coming down. You know, kind of 
Uh, we're, we're going to be resurrected beings on a resurrected planet with God once more descending to join us. It kind of reminds me of the Christmas story. Merry Christmas, everybody. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The first time he came, he brought nothing. The second time he comes, he's bringing heaven itself. The first time he was vulnerable to Satan, the second time he's coming to squash Satan. The first time he came into this world, he was, he was a baby. The second time he is a king. God is coming to us. This present world and heaven as it now exists is not our final destination. You see, God is not anti-matter. He invented matter. He likes it. And that includes our bodies. Now in heaven, people are just spirits. Spirits that look like us, that feel like us, that are us. But one day, we will be re-embodied. Our spirits will take on flesh. On the day of resurrection, when the trumpet shall sound, and when Christ shall call his bride to himself, our resurrected body will become one with our spiritual selves. He who created us will recreate us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give us a body like Jesus' resurrected body. Our new body will be infinitely better than the one we've got now, by the way. We can't envision our new bodies by looking at these bodies. As Eugene Peterson phrased it, there are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do have a parallel experience, though, in gardening. You plant a dead seed, and soon there's a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness, he said, have you noticed, between seed and plant. You could never guess what a tomato looks like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it doesn't seem to resemble one another. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different, says Peterson. And that is a good thing. Somehow God will take a sample of our DNA and create a new, renewed body out of it. Just as God can make an oak out of an acorn or a tulip out of a bulb, he will make a new body out of the old one, one that is identical to the body of Jesus. That's what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 2. Jesus will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. One day our souls will unite with our resurrected bodies and we will be what Christ intended us to be from the beginning. You have never come close to seeing yourself the way God sees you one day. But one day you will become the person God created you to be, like himself. What kind of body does Jesus have now? He has a real body. Real enough to walk on the road to Emmaus. Real enough to have eat breakfast with the disciples by the shoreline. Real enough to appear as a gardener on Easter morning. Real enough to retain the scars of the cross and let Thomas touch them. But his body is different. Jesus passed through walls to hiding disciples. He is flesh. We will be flesh. But a different kind of flesh altogether. As Paul says, corruption will put on incorruption. Mortality will put on immortality. We will put on flesh that doesn't age or get sick or can be injured or dies. Flesh that shines with the glory of Christ as it absorbs his love and breathes in his presence. 
We will have no more sin, no more shame, no more mental illness, no more neuroses, no more psychoses, no more paraplegics, no more deformities, no more cancer. Why? Because our faith tells us Jesus died a physical death. He rose from an actual tomb and he has a resurrected and he was resurrected with an actual resurrection body and we will get what he got because he was the first fruits, the prototype of what is to come. And because of we get a body like his, we can behold his glory directly. We can look at his face and live. That's a new thing. In heaven, we won't have to walk by faith anymore. We get to walk by sight. We can receive what he has for us without reservation or risk. We can absorb his love and be saturated by it every second of every day as naturally as breathing itself. When we get to heaven, we will not need our daily bread anymore. We will not need daily devotions anymore. We will not need Sunday school class anymore. We won't need church services anymore. Because the light, John tells us, and the presence of God will be everywhere. And that means we will never do anything without his love pouring through us as we do it. We will never miss what he has for us. That's what John says. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be our temples. 3,000 years ago, there was a man named Job who lost everything, including 10 children. And he had one hope. That hope was, in my flesh, I shall see God. And that hope and belief carried him past every heartache, every pain, every loss. It should do the same for us. But it's not just us who will be recreated. Peter says this earth will melt with fervent heat. Not to destroy it, but to cleanse and restore it. Right now in the Pacific Ocean is floating a clump of plastic the size of Texas. Plastic straws, bottles, ties, containers, ad infinitum are floating together. It is so large that a company in California is equipping ships to go and harvest the plastic for recycling so they can make a profit, profit off of it, which means they expect it to be there year after year after year. One day that plastic will melt with fervent heat. One day... There will be garbage dumps gone and smog and every kind of pollution. Sewage plants will be no longer. Eden and what it was supposed to be will return. Every drop of water, every molecule in our atmosphere, every tree and blade of grass will be as God originally created it to be. Earth will become what God designed in the beginning. Like it says here in the passage today, God says, I will make everything new. Animals will, be no, longer, will no longer devour each other. And yes, there will be animals on this new earth. It's hard, as Isaiah pictured it, for lions to lay down beside lambs if there are no lions and there are no lambs. It will be hard for toddlers to play with snakes if there are no snakes. Our relationship with animals will be the same as Adam's in the garden. Nature and humanity will work in perfect harmony. What I'm saying is that the animals we have now will be there in the new world, except for mosquitoes and French poodles. <laughs> By the way, that's what Pastor Linda was laughing at. I thought I was safe. 
making fun of mosquitoes and French poodles. Apparently, someone owns a French poodle, and they said, there will be standard poodles in heaven. <laughs> and this person after the service came to me and said, and that poodle in heaven is going to bite you in the rear when you get there. <laughs> Which I think makes my point not theirs. And here's something that may surprise some of you. When heaven comes to earth, it says there will continue to be nations and kings and rulers who bring their splendor to the throne of God. It later says that part of the function of eating the fruit from the tree of life is for the healing of the nations. What scripture is telling us here and in other places is that nations and cultures and tribes and different ethnicities continue on the new heaven and in the new earth. God created diversity. And guess what? He intends to keep it. Our differences are not the problem. Our sin concerning those differences are the problem. God does not want us all looking alike, talking alike, living alike, acting alike, and being clones of each other. God likes diversity. That's why there's more than one kind of flower. That's why there's more than one kind of tree. Diversity is as he designed it. What's also surprising is that God, even when heaven comes to earth, allows there to be other rulers than himself. Of course, Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He will be calling the shots. But there are other rulers who help him rule. That's what John said in today's passage. Jesus himself promised that his followers would help rule with him. That we would be heirs and joint heirs with him. That we who live for Christ will rule with Christ. This takes me back to the Beatitudes. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are those who don't grab for power or get power and abuse it. Why? Because the meek will what? Inherit the earth, the new earth. And then he said, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are those who gave up everything for the kingdom, who gave up their freedom, gave up their health, gave up their lives for the kingdom. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of God. Randy Alcorn said, I once gave one of my books to a delightful hotel bellman. I discovered he was a committed Christian. He said he'd been praying for our group, which was holding a conference in the hotel at which he worked. Later, I gave him a little gift, a rough wooden cross. It wasn't much. He seemed stunned, overwhelmed. With tears in his eyes, he said, you don't need to do that. I'm only a bellman. The moment he said it, I realized that this brother had spent his life serving and had a servant's heart. It will likely be someone like him that I'll have the privilege of serving under in God's kingdom. He was only a bellman who spoke with warmth and love to everyone he met, who served joyously, who quietly prayed in the background for the success of our conference in this hotel. I saw Jesus in that bellman and there was no only about him. Who will be the kings of the new earth? I think that bellman will be one of them, and I will be honored to carry his bags. There will be a different kind of ruler in power when Christ comes back ruling the nations. 
Imagine politicians who don't lie. I've asked for too much. Okay. Imagine rulers who actually care about people and doing the right thing instead of being controlled by lobbyists. Imagine governments that are just. The greatest purveyor from an earthly perspective of evil in the history of this planet has been governments. Oppression of people cannot take place without government sanctioning. Take slavery, for example. Genocides cannot happen without governments doing it or backing it. And there are no ways we can have wars without governments promoting and waging them. Paul said there are powers and principalities in high places. What do you think Paul meant by high places? He wasn't talking about elevation. He wasn't talking about altitude. He wasn't talking about there are powers and principalities living in the clouds or on the top of Mount Everest. He was talking about power centers, about media, about governments. One day those who suffered the most will replace those who caused the most suffering. Hallelujah. One day those who were treated the most unjustly will be in charge of seeing that justice and shalom is done to every person in every nation. Hallelujah. One day, the peacemakers will be in charge instead of those who wage war. One day, the nations will be healed and swords will be beaten into farming equipment and the spears turned into agricultural tools and there will be no more war because the nations will be healed and a new sheriff will be in town and the humble and those who suffered most under the governments will run the governments. Hallelujah. That is not my idea. That is Jesus' promise. What a scene in Revelation. You know, sometimes people like to take Revelation and make it so metaphorical that there's no reality to it, no physical, concrete reality to it. It's just all symbols. I don't believe that. I think in Revelation there's a continuity from this world to the next. And it tells us that there's a continuity of nations. The nations aren't going to be dissolved. There's a continuity of cultures. There's continuity of nature, continuity of animals, continuity of us. And that also means, in terms of continuity, that God, the God who created us to do good works in this world will not cancel the purpose with which when he resurrects us to the next one. Randy Alcorn writes, we're told we're going to help run the universe. We're told that we will serve God in heaven. Service is active, not passive. It involves responsibilities in which we expend energy. Work in heaven will not be frustrating or fruitless. Instead, it will involve lasting accomplishments, unhindered by decay and fatigue, enhanced by unlimited resources. Remember, work being hard is a product of the curse. God in, in Eden, Adam and Eve enjoyed their work. And then they sinned. And remember what God said? You will sweat. You will work hard. The ground will not produce fruit easily. He said, one of the ways that I'm going to punish you is that you will not enjoy work. But when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes back, we will approach work with the enthusiasm we bring to our favorite sport. Hallelujah. Every time I go play golf, I'm excited until about the third hole. Then reality hits again. Or hobbies. If your real passion is being a gardener here, why would it stop in the new heaven and the new earth? 
Engineers will design things they never dreamed of, we never dreamed of. The same for builders and scientists and a limitless number of other vocations. What will human beings, unhindered by sin and the barriers of this world, be able to design and build? What would a Da Vinci or an Edison or an Einstein achieved if they had lived a thousand years unhindered by the curse? What will we achieve when we have resurrected bodies with resurrected minds working together forever? Some researchers suggest that we only use 10% of our brain power, our brain's capacities right now. What happens when we use 100% of a resurrected brain that far exceeds the limits of the brain we have now? God made every person in this room for something, something that was meant to go into eternity, that has meaning, not just here and now, but then and there. God has given us the gift of creativity so we could join with him in creating a new world. We were created to be creators. In heaven, God will unleash our creativity, not destroy it. We're not going to turn into zombies going, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. What works of art will be painted with our new capacities? What kind of music will a Beethoven or a Mozart right there with new capacities. And I know Mozart's iffy. Anyway, what kind of books, what kind of books will be written there? And voices. If you have a good voice here, can you imagine what your voice is going to be there? And if you have a terrible voice here, it'll at least be average there. Praise the Lord. People won't cringe anymore. And part of the intriguing part for me is what gifts will we discover there that we had in us all along but were too insecure or never had the opportunity to use them or maybe even didn't dream they were there? What if living on this planet right now is the next Shakespeare, but he's in a place where there is no school and no education and he's illiterate or she's illiterate? What gifts do we have that will be discovered and unleashed into eternity? I can't wait to see. Richard Sigmund said that he had a near-death experience that actually lasted for several hours. And he said, one of the things that surprised him in, in heaven is that God does not want us to lose one bit of the talent and skill that people have developed on earth. He said, when that talent is brought to heaven... It is multiplied a millionfold. Our dreams will expand there, not shrink. And everything we do, we will do for the kingdom of God with unhindered joy. We'll like going to work. We will do it as an act of worship all the time. Sigmund says that the other thing that he saw is that we will always be learning in heaven. Our knowledge of God and what he has created is just beginning, folks. It's just beginning. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher who helped lead the first great awakening, wrote, the number of ideas of the saints will increase into eternity. 
In Ephesians 2, 6, 7, Paul wrote, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. The word show means reveal. It's in the present tense so that he will show and keep on showing, reveal and keep on revealing. In the new heaven and earth, God will continually show us things we never knew. In the new heaven and earth, he will continually reveal to us knowledge more vast and deep than we could learn in a hundred lifetimes or a thousand lifetimes here. We will never stop learning. Learning starts here, but it will continue there forever. And I'm sure that part of the learning will be exploring the vast universe of ours and perhaps countless others. As George MacDonald, the great Scottish preacher, wrote, Christ will open his hand and send us out like doves to range the universe. What will it be like to stand beside a star? What will it be like to travel the speed of light? What will it be like to discover the physics of another dimension or explore a whole new universe? The possibilities are limitless. I started this mini-series on heaven to refute the misconception that heaven is boring. Does that sound boring to you, what I've just said? Oh, and I forgot one more thing. There will be all kinds of laughter in heaven. You cannot have joy without laughter. As a matter of fact, I tell people all the time, if you want to evaluate the health of a church do two things one see how long people linger with each other after church or do they get out of here as fast as they can and I need to tell you many of you stay way too long (laughs) (laughs) and the second thing the second thing is do people laugh a lot I don't trust a church where there's not a lot of laughter in heaven there will be plenty of laughter and in heaven there will be plenty of play. You know why? Part of it is is just because of the law of continuity. Do you know that when a child is born, you never have to teach them to laugh? Never have to teach a kid to laugh. You never have to teach a kid to smile. And did you know that when kids are growing up, if you just get out of the way, you don't have to teach them how to play either. They know how to play. It is inherent in us. And by the way, Jesus himself said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become like one of these little children. There's going to be a lot of that in heaven. Plus, you know, some some really good news is in heaven you won't have to watch Penn State play Ohio State anymore. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) I know, it says in heaven there'll be no more tears. That's why I said that, because in heaven there'll be no more tears. Uh, That's why I follow Alabama. There's never tears. Anyway. And this and all the more is coming for us. Think about the joy of discovery and play and laughter and enjoying work like you're going on a picnic. Like I said, I started this mini-series on heaven because I heard a young woman who was a committed Christian one time tell me, as I said in the first sermon, hell isn't real and heaven is boring. It is not. It is not. 
When we think about what's coming, we should feel like a kid at Christmas Eve. C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And in that story, Jill and Eustace, two children during World War II, are traveling on a train when they suddenly are thrust into Narnia. There they encounter all kinds of wondrous things and find adventure they never dreamed of. Jill and Eustace, when they think their time in Narnia is ending, beg Aslan, the Christ ruler of Narnia, not to send them back to earth again. It is then that Aslan tells the children what has really happened. He says, there was a real railway accident, Aslan tells them softly. Your mother and your father and all of you are, as you used to call it, dead. And then he looks at them and he says, the dream is ended. This is the morning. Your term is over. Now the holiday begins. And then Lewis concludes the story with this wonderful picture. He writes in this paragraph, and as he spoke, he no longer, Aslan never, no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, on this, in this world, this is the end of the story. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, for Eustace and Jill, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. The real adventure is not in this world. It is in the next. The lie of the devil is that this, this world, that this world holds the greatest moments of our existence. For the Christian, the opposite is true. For, for us, in light of what is coming, this world is as bad as it gets. I've never been to heaven. But something in me misses it. I've never seen the new heaven and the new earth, but there is something in every one of us that longs for it. We should yearn for our true home. I yearn for the riches of Christ, the unfathomable riches of Christ that I will spend eternity discovering. I yearn to see his face and look into the eyes of love that shows an eternity of love. I yearn to be drunk with, drowned with, and dissolved by the love of God. I yearn to talk to John and Paul and David and Ringo. No, not Ringo. <laughs> I can't wait to run. To be honest, I can't wait to run into my old man and see him as how he was supposed to be, how God really wanted him to be, and my mom. And I had a great Uncle Chester, they tell me about. He was quite a preacher, and he lived in southwest Virginia, and whenever he went to preach, the place was packed. I can't, I'd like to talk to him. And I want to thank people when I get to heaven 
the people that prayed for us and cheered for us, the cloud of witnesses for us. What a day that will be. I realize that my feeble explanations of heaven do not begin to capture the reality I wish to convey to you today. But the hole in my heart tells me we all were made for such a place and we all were made for such a time. And so I end this sermon and this series with a quote from C.S. Lewis because it was what I was trying to get at and, you know, he's a little better than me. He said, I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others press on to that other country too. We live in the present by the power of God and the grace of God. But folks, before this life is over, unless Jesus comes, every one of us is going to die. Our bodies are going to fail us. The doctors can do nothing for us. There are friends and family that will betray us. There are bosses that will fire us. If you are just living for this world, you're going to be deeply disappointed. Live now faithfully to Jesus. But your hope, your hope is for the next world. Your hope is that because at some point circumstances will turn against every one of us. Every one of us. And what will your hope be then? It cannot be, well, I'll live forever in this condition or, you know, we'll figure out something. At some point, your hope has to be for the other country. It has to be for a new heaven and a new earth. It, that is what will get you through. That is what you can cling to. That is what we have when we have nothing else left at all. Is hope, faith in Jesus and hope for what is coming. And no matter what we suffer getting there, I promise you it will all be worth it. All be worth it. At this point, I'd like the musicians to come forward. And I'd like the, I'd like the intercessors to come forward. I'd like you to stand. You've had it easy long enough. <laughs> Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I pray that if there is any person here who does not know their eternal destiny, who has any doubt that they will be in that place with you for eternity, a new heaven and a new earth. I pray, Lord, you will have them call me or someone on the staff or tell a friend, Lord Jesus, help no one in this room to miss what is coming in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. Let us worship.